listening. If you're a first-time listener, this is a music and arts podcast that sometimes veers into activism and social issues. But uh, as of late, it's mostly a music podcast, and it is kind of my favorite person to talk to, is the music ones. And I am an avid lover of music. Speaking of musicians, today's guest is a musician. It is Robbie Folks, uh, who has been under a lot of labels of music uh, in style, alt-country being one. We discuss that, the different labels and what it means, etc. And uh, it's a really great episode. Robbie's had this 30-year career. He's an encyclopedia of country music, and I won't lie, he might have tossed out a couple references I didn't get. <laughs> but I just keep fighting on. Um, I do need to clarify a few things. Um, this episode was recorded quite a while ago. I had some technical issues, and then I also had a baby, so I was not... Uh, I had to choose the episodes that were easier to edit because I had a new baby to deal with. So when we recorded this, John Prine was still alive, uh, but sick. Uh, sadly, Mr. Prine is no, no, no longer with us, but, and which is a great loss. Um, also, I say some things about music, uh, like it's missing a certain sort of sincerity, or and, and I don't mean that... I with all music, I, I think I was speaking more on the mainstream level, because obviously I don't believe that, because I listen to a lot of new music, and I love a lot of new music, so I don't want it to seem like I'm some old stodgy idiot who doesn't know what's going on. I uh, avidly seek new music all the time, and old music, and if you have any uh, suggestions of what I should listen to, or somebody that may be, may be a good interview... Um, Find my Instagram page, Conversations with Dwyer, and DM me, or go to my website, themattdwyer.com, and contact me and say, hey, get this person on the show. And I'll say, hey, I hope I can make that happen. Um, okay, I think that's it. Thank you for listening. Uh, here is my interview with Robbie Folks. <laughs> Is there a specific reason you avoid current culture, or is it just to ha happen? Well, I think I was avoiding current culture when I was eight years old, to tell you the truth, but it's become kind of a character gesture at this age that feels very comfortable. Like It's like, finally, you can say, no, nah, I'm just, I care about, oh, you know, you know, and it becomes off as credible and authentic where before it was just a bizarre you know that you would say that when you were 15 or 20 years old but uh, um, yeah I, do, I don't and then the other side is that uh, after you've had, you had kids you have so much more to do my first kid was when I was uh, 20 and um, and uh, it just seemed like uh, there was just so much more to do that uh like, ah, oh, I don't have time to keep up with TV shows and movies, and then music was the next thing to follow, and I, I just ended up in this freaking bubble. Did you, was your pr proclivity for music uh, at a young age sort of on the outside? Like, because I know you're 
uh, referenced as like a, a sort of an encyclopedia for country music, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, well, uh, my timeline or my thing was that uh, bluegrass was big in our house, you know, from when I was three, you know, whatever my earliest musical memory started, and uh, and also folk music, and my folks were really into that uh, stuff. And uh, then when I was a teenager, I started branching off and listening to the radio a little bit, but I kind of got into uh, a hodgepodge of uh, stuff that was uh, I guess it was current, but it wasn't necessarily, most of it wasn't popular. Like Bob Dylan was popular, the Beatles were popular, but everything else like Delbert McClinton and John Hartford, all, all these things, uh, Sam Bush, they were not popular. You know, they had a coterie audience, you might say. And then, um, and all this stuff doesn't even get us to country music. But when I was, uh, when I was in my twenties, I was in a bluegrass band. That was sort of my, um, that was my living and there was one guy in the band who was really into country music, and I started uh, taking the deep dive around that time. And, um, yeah, just never quite emerged um, from that water. Um, and uh, so I end up I end up at age uh, 57 here, um, you know, knowing a fair amount about music outside that. Like, I love... I love mid-century jazz and um, black gospel and uh, and uh, some rock, not a ton of it. Some um, some other stuff, but um, but country and bluegrass, like I know a ton about. Um, I mean, I personally, I feel like all that era that music is a lot more authentic, authentic than a lot of the. And I don't, I don't mean that to sound like an old man or whatever, but I'm like, a lot of the stuff I hear today, I'm just like, I, there's just, it lacks sincerity. And I feel like you, the music you're talking about, it just hits you on a different level. Is that how it hit you? Is that, what drew you Well, to there's it? a lot of ways to express this that make you sound really antiquated and meaningless and and just tied to your own era in an irrational way. And, but that doesn't necessarily make them untrue. I think that, um, you know, a friend of mine that plays, uh, in the group NRBQ says his opinion is that, um, that music, that there used to be sort of a joy and ecstasy. And, you know, I think you just said, did you just say innocence or did you just say authenticity? Authenticity and sincerity, but innocence works. <laughs> yeah like expressing a simple you know childlike happiness is uh something that i really treasured uh, when i was uh growing up and getting into music and still treasure it but i i don't hear it as much in in new stuff but what i think is uh is even more to the point is that the constraints that people worked under when they were at least recording music. I'm talking about recorded music more than, than live music now. Um, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, were um, were really tied into the uh, to the success of the the artistic success of the thing, um, which is you know we have three hours and we have so much money and we've got to turn out two songs in the three hours and we have to play all together because we don't have overdub technology yet. And the result of all this was that uh, you get uh, stuff through the medium of 
tape that is um, uh, a documentation of a performance. And there are, I don't know, four or five different technological reasons why that, why that model has kind of, um, has kind of waned, but, um, but it's, still out there it's still the one that i and you know a lot, a lot of other people use and unfortunately um i don't know there's there's something sometimes that when you use an old model that you don't have to use but you use it because you admire it and out of determination and willpower that it, it doesn't quite come off in the same way sometimes that it would if you were stuck with that and doing all that stuff without thinking about it right is i don't know if this is a leap but is is that because I've read that you worked with Steve Albini, and I feel like he has a lot of similar philosophies along along those lines. Is that what drew you to work with him, or was that some other reason? No, I um, I plagiarized some of my philosophy from him um, because <laughs> he was sort of uh, <laughs> he was one of the first engineers I worked with as a young man, and so. Uh, I started working with him in 1986, so I guess I was 23 at the time, and um, uh, and so yeah, he is he is he is definitely a um, an articulate and severe, I would say, proponent of uh, the idea of we're going to document a performance, and uh, and of course, as I said, analog, you know, tape is part of this thing too, and I kind of. Uh, so I, I got a, a lot of that philosophy from him and and thought about it and uh, tried uh, challenging and rejecting some of it for some years. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I ended up at a place where I work with computers now and I love the editing potential and capabilities of computers. And wouldn't want to do without them. So I end up in a place that's not quite where he is, but I do. And I also think that tape isn't essential to me at all. I put out stuff that, uh, that is based solidly in digital formats, was recorded digitally and mastered digitally, and you know never saw tape in its in its um, in its anywhere in its uh, evolution. Uh, I don't know how interesting this is to any listener at all, but anyway, um, <laughs> I'm fascinated for whatever it's worth. I'm... I ended up at a, yeah, I don't know. Just to, just to close the thought, I ended up at a sort of, uh, you know, like a, you have free will, uh, determinists and, uh, and people that think there, there is free will. And then in the middle is the compatible, compatibilist position. And so I'm, um, I'm in a compatibilist uh, position where it comes to tape versus digital. And most of my stuff uses some combination and uses a computer, but I still, um, I still am very attached to the live performance. I don't think there's, I don't think there's a good way to simulate um, the communicativeness of a group performance. And um, uh, I think if you're, if that isn't built into the, uh, idea of the project and you're trying to put out trying to make music that doesn't sound like a group performance then then there's plenty of great recordings of this modern era that are made that way but if you're trying to put across the idea that this really happened and we were playing together and feeling each other's thoughts at the moment of uh of uh of playing 
then then you just got to do that thing. You can't simulate it. Is is that the every time you go into a recording? Is that sort of the goal, or do you have a different set of goals of how how you would want whatever the the new project is to feel? Um. Yes, I'm pretty set in my ways at this point. It seems like each of the last uh, three or four things that I put out and one or two things that I produced uh, for other people were all the same methodology. So I, I guess I've I've closed in on a methodology. Is what I'm saying in the last uh, in the last ten years. But what's different, you know, project to project is what kind of music is it? Um, who's playing? Who's engineering? What studio? You know, all of that stuff. You just uh, build from the ground up and a lot of it you build on, you know, according to what, what are the songs? What's the, what's the, the mood we're trying to create. But, uh, I think if, uh, yeah, I think anybody that wants to make records the other way, you know, a piece at a time or using, uh, computers in a musically creative way as part of the process or using loops or so forth. I think, uh, I would, I wouldn't be the guy involved with that. Uh, I'm on the other planet. <laughs> uh, which it kind of it's reminded me because um, you were talking about like the genre or whatever, and it's like when I was looking through the internet about you, it's like there's your you never have the same label of a, a, a style of music, and a part of me is irritated by that because I'm like, what's it fucking matter? Can it just isn't are, are, don't we know Robbie folks for what Robbie his entire body? I was just curious of how you feel about that sort of endlessly labeling and labeling in general of music. I don't know if that's a weird question. Yeah. You're saying like one thing that I've done is alternative country and another thing is yeah, and then they call is, you uh, like, uh, rock or some variant. Yeah. And I don't know. I, I just, I find that odd that, that cause I, I don't know. It just seems like people need to label it and, it never seems to fit. I don't know if I was just wondering if that drives you crazy or. Well, um, I would say that, uh, I've just stopped worrying about it. I mean, there's no easy answer to it. I think the labels are, <laughs> the labels are, I don't want to sneer at labeling, which I've, I've kind of done in the past. It's easy to do, but I mean, when I think about areas of, life that I don't know anything about, you know, I'm like, a, you know, an Elizabethan play, like that means something to me, but maybe to a playwright, it's a ridiculous, you know, appellation that, uh, you know, what are you talking about an Elizabethan play? I mean, in areas of the world that we don't know anything about, we depend on these, on these category markers and it's fine, you know, in a broad way. And then the problem um, with me personally, I would say is that um, the, uh, I'm, uh, well, uh, there's there's no way to say it without sounding really um, self-congratulatory, but there's nobody that is doing exactly what I'm doing. So in other words, there's not a so-called country sort of experimenting with um, with uh, with uh, uh, jazz ideas or instrumentations or approaches or is, you know, open to uh, um inserting silences or smashing glasses and the music or things like this. Like I'm pretty uh, open-minded about what I'll let into the music, especially if I'm listening to music, you know, outside myself that is really turning me on, you know, I'm just a very, I, I have no, um, no guardrails against letting that in as an influence. 
Um, so I understand the categorization uh, confusion uh, totally. But if somebody's uh, if somebody's on my train, you know, on my small board of uh, on my small band of. Uh, of, uh, you know, people that appreciate what I do. I think at this point, you know, 30 years into my thing or whatever it is that they're, that they understand that the next thing to come out won't sound exactly like the last thing. And that I like to, uh, I like to take, uh, you know, experimental risks. And also that, you know, if you look at it on the whole, there's, there's, definitely a personality that runs through all of it that to me is, you know, supersedes any of these, you know, stylistic markers or, you know, whether a guitar is playing here or a horn's playing there, all that kind of stuff. It's like the personality of me that runs through the, my catalog is a stronger, uh, current than, you know, any, uh, any sort of, uh, uh, you know, verbal, um, um, markers. Right. You, yeah. Cause you have a hardcore, uh, group of followers. Do you, do they just go with, do they accept wherever you go or do you ever get, uh, reactions from them or they're like, wait a minute, that's, that's not Robbie folks. Um, I used to, uh, quite a lot. Uh, like when I went from, uh, bluegrass into, I don't know what I was doing in 1990. I guess it was kind of a rockish quartet. Uh, I heard complaints like, what are you doing? And then I saw people that had come to all my shows just not show up anymore. Uh, same thing when I went into sort of bloodshot records, country music world a couple of years later. Same thing where I went back to a rock quartet after that. And I remember, you know, as recently as the early aughts, going out and actually trying to sort of fuck with people, you know, that's part of it too. It's, <laughs> it's fun to, it's fun to fuck with people. And so, uh, we'd open a show for one run. I opened a show with an, uh, like an eight minute, you know, that Emerson, Lake and Palmer thing. Uh, welcome back my friends to the show that never ends. Yes. My first carnival nine. And it yeah. goes on for like eight minutes and a half. And, um, and so we'd open a show with that, and another run we opened with uh, a Blossom Deary song that was uh, totally, um, I know the word gay is out of date, but gay is really descriptive of what it was. <laughs> like, it was, I, I was happy, and in people's faces, and singing, bang goes the drum, bang goes the drum, and you'd see these people with... I'm sorry, it's People with tattoos me. and mohawks or whatever, just staring at me like... This is this isn't why I brought my my friend and what I told him you were about and what your records sound like. It's gay Broadway music, so it's fun to totally fun to mess with people. But all that said, I haven't been able to to, to strike any of those nerves in the last uh, eighteen years or so because everybody knows what I'm all about at this point. And um, and happily, I think that idea that the personality is the thing, which it was always my idea, like, you know, just follow me while I, while I mess around. It's not going to hurt anybody, you know, and if, uh, if I do something that doesn't work, I'll stop doing it. But just keep with me, you know, because I kind of have some idea what I'm doing, and it'll be fun. It'll be a fun ride. And I think that idea is, 
you know, has clicked in for, you know, not a lot of people, but enough people for me to keep, keep at it year after year. See, that's, I've, that's what I've always been drawn to is like the, the, the personality of an artist and the, the, like you look at somebody like Tom Waits, it's like his point A to his point, like where he is now, it's just like, what the, like, it's just fucking insane where he went. And to me, it's like, that's ex- an exciting thing to get on board with and just be like, what's next? Where I wish uh, other musicians I've talked to, you know, they get nervous about straying, you know, they want to experiment, but they don't want to stray too far from what they're known for. And I'm like, who gives a shit, man? Like, what do you, what, what do you have to lose? Yeah, I think uh, even more... Um I guess you radically than Tom Waits. Uh, if you think of of a string of Neil Young or Bob Dylan records from 1970 to 1980 something, or you think of uh, Don Byron's or Jenny Scheinman's or Bill Frizzell's records from uh, you know well point A to point B, then um, then you you have uh, you have this really ping ponging kind of thing of okay now I want to do this okay now I want to put on a hat and, uh, and, and make these noises instead. Okay. Now I'm, now I'm a redneck. Okay. Now I'm cosmopolitan. And, uh, uh and it's, I love it. Uh, I think it's, I, I think it's just not a thing that people are doing much anymore. And I think, uh, I think the Tom Waits thing is a more, uh, more, um, plausible and comprehensible sort of an evolutionary, um, uh, line to it than what I'm talking about with the ping ponging, but in either event, it's just it's just something that's fun to keep up with, and you know you trust the person because you have an imaginary relationship with Bob Dylan or Tom Waits or whoever it is, and you're curious to see what he's going to do next, right? Do you think that that doesn't exist in music anymore? It's, is because of like the climate? Is it like a too corporate capitalistic bullshit, or is it just we're not in a fun time? <laughs> I mean, like with, I guess, contemporary music. I'm the wrong guy to ask. I think if I ask my son, you know, do do you feel that way about Denzel Curry or uh, Thundercat? Then that I just have no idea what the answer would be. You know, he always has interesting feedback when we talk about music, and there, and I always realize after talking to him that there's stuff going on out there in the world with people that are in their 20s that I just have no clue about. So I've learned to shut up about it. Do you have any curiosity about that or you just don't give a shit about what's going on? That's a harsh, I didn't mean to say shit, but like, you know, is it just not something that you're willing to invest in? What's going on? You know what, I, I, I love uh, what I've heard of the Denzel Curry music that he's played to me, but the context is getting so alien for me at this point that it's exactly like, you know, I, I think uh, you and a lot of your listeners are familiar with Second City, you know, improvisational group in Chicago, and, and I used to see other shows, and I still do, and I still enjoy them, but I'm also aware that um, they're not speaking to me anymore you know it's not it's not aimed at me and the concerns and the anxieties uh in particular of a 25 year old uh are are not exactly my uh, that's not my world quite anymore so so um that's to say i appreciate it 
but I'm not sure that if I devoted a lot of waking hours to it, to understanding it and 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 finding out the, more about the world that it swims in and about its context, if I'd if I'd come out more as an art appreciator or more as somebody that's just naturally swimming with it, the way that I'm naturally swimming with my own thing. Right. When just to like jump way back, because I I saw that you went to Columbia University for. Uh, uh, two years, I believe. Is did music? What did you major in, in at Columbia? Because I've also I find that because that's like one of the hardest schools to get into in the country, if if not world, right? Well, it might be now. It wasn't then because they let me in. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> it was. They started letting women in. Um, uh, I think two years after I dropped out. And so right there, it's a totally different ball game. I never would have gotten in from the moment they started letting women in. But when I got in, uh, part of the reason I got in was I think a lot of people from farms in the South weren't applying to get in. And, and I think I was an oddity and, and maybe a diversity candidate in a way. Um, my, my, my grades or my scores weren't, uh, uh, certainly didn't didn't uh, lock the deal in for me, so I, I don't know why they let me in, but uh, I sure didn't belong there. I was majoring in uh, <laughs> in English, and uh, I think uh, one of my regrets, like my wife uh, that you talked to yesterday, like she went to the other Columbia in uh, Chicago, and um, which I might have been too snobbish to even apply to, you know, like an art school in the Midwest somewhere. Um, I think I was kind of a young snob and thought that I probably belonged in New York at an Ivy league school, you know, and those were my people. There was, a, there was no basis, no evidence for that idea whatsoever. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but my wife, uh, her friends at Columbia in Chicago, um, like a lot of them are, you know, it's not famous. They're like established, people in the world of the arts now that are, that have admirable resumes and careers. And the people that I went to school with, uh, I mean, Barack Obama was there. So, I mean, there were people that went on to successes and uh, became famous cardiologists and the president of the United States and so forth. But as far as the arts, uh, that, uh, you know, whose, whose records anybody is racing to the store to go get or whose uh, TV show somebody's uh, going out to stream today. I, I just, uh, I'm not sure they were there at all. So I think I, I would have, uh, the better choice for me would have been to meet some pickers, you know, some musicians. Well, you were, weren't you playing around Greenwich Village in that time? Is And did that draw you out of college? Because that was why I was going to college and, well, it was a mix of, it wasn't feeding me creatively and I was excessively doing drugs, but, but I was just like, I'm just going to go do shows. I'm not going to study this stuff. I'll just go and do it. And I, I was just curious if that was a similar trajectory for you. Not the drug. Were you in New York? Uh, I went to Columbia college. I was actually there around the time your wife was, but I didn't make it through a half a semester due to various reasons. Aha. Uh-huh. But we, well, uh, we know a lot of the same people. Hi, I'm going to take a break from the conversation real quickly just to say, if you can, please subscribe to the show, write a review, and rate it on iTunes. That will greatly help me. Also, if you really like the show and you want to become a bigger part of the 
Conversations with Matt Dwyer community, you can become a Patreon subscriber at uh, patreon.com slash conversations with Dwyer. And you can go to all things uh, Matt Dwyer. You can go to themattdwyer.com and find links to social media, merchandise, and everything. I am solely an independent artist putting out this podcast. I don't have a network. I don't have a lot of commercial money. So word of mouth, telling your friends, writing about my show on social media or rating it and reviewing it all help me greatly. Or become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash conversations with Dwyer. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I forget what your question did a little of that and Oh, just it what kind of led me. Yeah, what led you yeah. out of Columbia? Because I know you were playing around Greenwich Village. What led me out of New York was I, I got a girl pregnant, and uh, she lived in uh, Chicago, or rather her parents did, and uh, so that we decided that would be our, our home base. We'd live with her parents, and I would get a job, and we would set up a new life for ourselves. And, um, and so that, that kind of worked out for a little while. But as far as Greenwich Village, uh, um, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't feel I fit in there. You know, I really had to. Uh, uh, wasn't at all apparent how I was going to fit in for many years. Um, you know, as say a music as a musician or a sideman. You know, like playing flat pick bluegrass guitar maybe with somebody, or maybe playing electric guitar with some band, or being a writer or being what I don't know. Um, but uh, but I just a lot of different things until I was you know thirty five or so and doing what I'm doing now. Is that it was were you thirty five when the it started to become more of uh, your career opposed to like playing with other people? I was uh, thirty three when my first uh, solo thing came out, and before that. Like I told you, I was in a bluegrass band for a while. I was a songwriter for a while uh, on Music Row. I was a music teacher for a while. And then the bands that I was in, I did some sideman work with with rock bands and with uh, country bands. And uh, and I led, uh, I led a couple of things which were sort of country rock influenced, I guess, and did some solo gigs just as a sensitive, uh, you know, guitar guy or whatever. But... It was it was just hard to see how you would glue all this together into one thing unless you were putting out records on your own name and had one of these careers like these we were just talking about a moment ago, which were kind of rare figures, you know? Like, I, I want to be another Neil Young-style guy. That's kind of a ridiculous idea. But, um, I mean, just to use his name out of the several we were using a second ago. But it seemed like that was the only way that I could glue it all together and you know, pursue different sounds and keep growing and write and sing and play, just keep all those balls in the air at the same time. Uh, and did you go, to, when you moved to Nashville, was that solely to try to, was, did you try, were you trying to make it as a solo artist or was that also to be, uh, work as a songwriter for other people? Well, I had heard the companies were hiring, um, writers, and it was kind of a gold rush period, you know, and it was Garth Brooks, No Fences period in country music. So the audience was then, uh, you know, 14 million strong based on what he had established. Big audience. And uh, I thought, well, I can do that, you know. And uh, so I got a job pretty quickly. 
and um, some supporters, you know, inside the business there. But uh, as soon as I was in the door and making a weekly income writing Reba McIntyre style songs, I could uh, I could sort of see that uh, you know that that even if I could get cuts, which I didn't, as it turned out, but even if I could, uh, it wasn't something. I wanted to be doing for 20 years. It wasn't quite me. And I wanted to use that as a stepping stone if I could to get a, a label deal. So I started doing showcases and sort of imposing on my publisher to help me with that. And then uh, uh, contemporaneous with that, um, you know, at the same time, Bloodshot Records in Chicago was starting up and I made a record for them, started working with them. And I thought to myself, well, one of these two, is going to lead somewhere and, uh, and turn out the one did, but it wasn't the Nashville one. Uh, and your song fucked this town. Did, I've been told it ruffled, <laughs> ruffled some feathers, which is by the way, a, a phenomenally great song. I love it very much, but I mean, cause well, we'll agree to disagree on that. But <laughs> <laughs> you don't like the song or you at all? Or, I'm sick of it. I, I, I got sick of it like three years after I wrote it to tell you the truth. Oh, uh, well, just for you, so you know, that was a Paul Turner uh, was like you. It's one of his favorite songs, so <laughs> so that's that's the sole reason I brought it up. And now I, I hope I didn't. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's uh, it's just one of those songs. I mean, it's it's. I love writing that kind of song, and I've written a lot of that kind of song, but I just don't like having to sort of, uh, or feeling that I have to play it more than, I don't know, a hundred or 200 times. And like the 201st time I'm like, okay, like, let's put this one out to pasture and move on. And, um, but it's funny. I was just talking to somebody about, uh, for John Prine's obituary, which they're writing prematurely as they do with obituaries. And I was thinking about, you know, his accomplishments and I thought, man, he's written, He's written 20 different Fuck This Towns, and somehow, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, Illegal Smile or um, or Dear Abby or a song like that, um, they're just not they're just not funny to yourself after you've, <laughs> you've done it for 200 <laughs> times. But he's a uh, he came out okay somehow, and I think he was able to retire. He. Um, went through life and and he'd written so many of them that he was able to pick and choose and so there's definitely way out of it but for me that song just takes up too much too much air in uh in my uh in my resume do you are there any songs that you just never tire of playing that are just is as fresh the first as they were the first time Yeah, a lot of them. Um, well, I don't know, a lot of them, but, you know, most records have, most of my records have three songs like that that I don't get tired of. And uh, and uh, and then most of them have another, you know, eight that I end up thinking, no, 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 that was a big mistake. <laughs> like six years later. Uh, I just, cause like, maybe that was the best I could do, but I wish I hadn't immortalized it, so to speak. Yeah, I just, I remember being at Second City and sometimes being within scenes I'd done a thousand times and being like, fuck, why did I help create? Just thinking about several other things while I'm doing the scene and being like, oh, I got to pick up laundry and man, I can't wait till this show is over. 
And then there was other, there was, uh, you know, then there was other pieces that you just lived for every night that were, you probably could do for the rest of your life and not tire of them. That, that's, um, but you probably, as songs, you're doing them for, you know, 20, 30 years. I, yeah. It's only you could figure out that stuff in the moment, right? Yeah. <laughs> I just, I couldn't imagine. you were putting it up. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. I say, if only you knew, you know, how to separate the sheep from the goats in the moment, so that you wouldn't have to look at the these horrible things again and again. Yeah, I, I still, I still have things I cringe about thirty years later, where I'm just like, oh my god, I did that <laughs> in front of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but. Uh... But then once it has a life of its own outside of us, then, uh, then we have to give some slack to uh, others, you know, enjoyment, I guess, and uh, it, it gets away from us. But uh, and uh, but mainly I think I'm appreciative of the fact that I wasn't, like, creating records when I was 19, 21 years old, you know, or the stuff that I did record is just in my closet. Um, and I, I, I end up with a lot of sympathy for people that were, you know, got their big break when they were that age and just have to live with all these winces for the rest of their lives now. Yeah, that was, that was, I got hired at Second City when I was 21 and I was talking to Donna about that yesterday. I was like, I was not psychologically ready. Like I was perhaps creative enough, but there was still an, you know, my brain wasn't fully developed. And it was like, you know, I'm, it was a lot to put on someone that young because I and I thought about that with you because you said you were making your living in your twenties as a musician and I don't know if that uh, if that affected you in a, a negative or a positive way because I think early success for me kind of uh, fucked with my ego a bit and then one day I had a delivery job and I'm like what happened <laughs> I was like how did I end up here. Right. What? Uh, what? How old are you now? Fifty-one, and I'm it, not in a delivery job. But you know, I I was uh, spent a, a span of time delivering pieces of sod uh, that dogs would uh, urinate and defecate on, and then uh, there were puppy parks, and then I'd have to pick them up when they were dirty and, and and replace them, and that was my job after being a successful actor for. Uh, 15 years <laughs> wow that's definitely a lateral move isn't it that's uh, um, it, yeah it, but it's, you kept strong anyway uh, yeah I don't know if it's, that's ego or delusion I or, or a, a healthy combo of both but yeah I just was like it paid well there was that well, then it's got it all over most comedy jobs, I would say. So when you were 21, uh, this was, uh, you're saying, 30 years ago, did you say? Uh, yeah, 1991-2-ish, uh, I was hired to tour with Second City. So who was, oh, you were touring, or were you working the main stage as well? Or I toured for three years, and then they had a theater in the northwest suburbs for a while. I did that one. And then I was in the Second City ETC, which I know you've performed at because you do uh, the Letters to Santa thing. If, if, you, do you do that every year, right? It was for a while, yeah. Um, um, it seems to be 
be that when I started looking at Second City, unfortunately, I'm more familiar with the main stage stuff than anything else. But the uh, when I first started uh, going to those, it was Dan Castellanata and Harry Murphy and um, I forget who all else. Probably yeah. Jim Zulovic that long. After that, well, a while after that. Yeah, Zulovic was, I toured with Zulovic. But that's funny that you say that because when I first started going to Second City... Dan Castellaneta and Harry S. Murphy were on the main stage, and Bonnie, it was Bonnie Hunt and Richard Kind and a couple others. But that's it. Yes. We must, we, we, I was just living in the suburbs, and I would drive, I would go and watch the improv sets every night, and I went so often that I told this story to your wife, but the staff started recognizing me, and I started, I ended up like getting hired on the staff. and So we probably saw a lot of the same improv sets and whatnot. Yeah, I remember them being great, but maybe uh, maybe it's like for those people we were just talking about, and uh, and uh, Richard Kind would hate looking back on that era. I don't know, but uh, I, I remember thinking it was fucking great, you know. Yeah, no, I worked on on the staff when Chris Chris Farley was on the stage, and it was Farley, Joe List, Dave Pasquese, um, Joel Murray, and Tim Meadows, and uh, I mean, it truly was like you couldn't. It was better than scripted comedy. Like those guys were so brilliant all the time that it was just mind blowing. Like it was like watching great. You know, it'd be like if you got to watch Coltrane and Miles Davis play together. It was just insanity. Oh yeah. Oh, I, w- I would pay anything to see uh, Chris Farley and Dave Pasquese in a sketch at the same time. I, I was. I can't even imagine that. It was. They would do, Farley, Joe Liss, and Pasquese would do entire improvised episodes of The Honeymooners, but it would, like, have some, like, dark twist about it where, like, uh, Ralph sold Alice's organs to, like, the black market or was dealing drugs, and it would, like, be these twisted but brilliant, like, and and perfect, and it was just, like... And this was like the level that they played on pretty much 99% of the time. It was just that amazing. Wow. You didn't, wow. You, you didn't go there when uh, Farley was there? No. So when is that? Is that late 80s? That was, yeah, 89 and 90. And then I think he, or 88, 88, 89. And I think he might've been on SNL by 90. Yeah, I was away a couple of years, unfortunately. In fact, the next, maybe the next time when I was like fully in it was like when Rachel and Tina and Jenna Jolovitz and uh, and Scott Adzit and Kevin Dorff and all that. So mid nineties, that's a distance from the Harry Murphy era. But I think I was dark for several years in between. Yeah, that's when I was in. I was in the ETC in ninety seven, ninety eight, and then uh, I was out of there by 98 and then I started doing some other comedy shit in town we got way off of you <laughs> you turned you turned the tables on me yeah what you mean talking about comedy instead of music uh, uh, talking about my like some of me but uh did, did yeah did you um you're like friendly, like you're a, a friend of the theater. It's safe to say, right? Because you're pretty. Because Beth Kligerman um, said to, for me to say hi to you when she heard I was going to interview you. Yeah, I love Beth, and um, 
Really, uh, Tina was my kind of uh, lead back into it because uh, she was my uh, student for a little while at Old Town School, and uh, and so we got to be uh, friends. And um, and I went to the show, and um, and it just kind of went from there. But Beth, um, I don't think I met Beth until Tina and Jeff got married, which was what like two thousand or something. I forget when that was now. Uh, but it was several years, uh, a few years later that I met Beth, but she's great. And she's my main, main link there now. Yeah. Jeff, Jeff was, I, Jeff was my musical director and we lived in the same building, which was actually above Delilah's right when Tina got hired for SNL. So we would, uh, I would go down there and have dinner with them on occasion. Um, never drink it. That's funny because one of my memories with her is dropping her off in my shitty, um, uh, what kind of car was that? It wasn't a Mazda. Maybe it was a Mazda. Anyway, it's a, like awful falling apart car, but I would, I dropped her up there a couple times at Delilah's. And it's funny you said that right now. Cause I was wondering, is she just going to a bar now where I'm dropping her? Does she live in the bar? But apparently that was where Jeff lived and you lived. So now it's all come together. Uh, yeah, no, Tina was just a big alcoholic. She would just go and <laughs> booze it up and then go to Jeff. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you taught at the, were there any people that you taught at, uh, the uh, shit, I'm, old school, school of folk? Old town school. Yeah. 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 Um, cause that was, I mean, that's an iconic Chicago joint. Is, was there anybody who you were taught and mentored that, uh, moved on to great things there? I think there was somebody. I'm trying to remember who it was. Ah, you know, no, not really. Because, like, Tina and Eddie Jemison and others that I'm thinking about were just, like, in other lines of work. They they didn't go into music. I'm trying to think of somebody that that went into music. What was Tina? I don't know. I'll have to get back to you on that. What was Tina studying? Because I didn't, I didn't, that's, I had no idea. Oh, there was a lady called Alice Peacock that made some records and uh, still works as a musician in Chicago. She was a student, but yeah, nobody like Dave Matthews or somebody wasn't one of my students. Um, Tina just showed up. You remember that ukulele where they were they were playing? I think Scott Edson was playing old records in the rectory basement or something. Oh, they yeah. all turned out to be horribly dirty records. That's one of the best. And I think that was the sketch where. Tina was playing the ukulele, and somebody else was singing through a little megaphone. That was Zulovic. And, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jim, a, Jim, that's uh, Jim. Incredible sketch. Yeah, that's one of the funniest things I think that's ever come through the stages at Second City. It would make me cry I was laughing so hard. Agreed. Yeah, I, I love that sketch, but and, and I'm happy that I played a small role in it because I guess she just came to learn uh, some chords, you know, the, my Saturday morning class, and then uh, and then uh, liked it enough to stay on a little longer after, you know, the first few chords that she needed were obtained, and uh, um, yeah, that was why she was there. That's uh, well. That's you contributed to one of the greatest scenes at that place. So that's uh, quite the feather in your cap. Yeah, if that's all I, am, it doesn't matter to me at all that anybody could have given her that information. I just feel so <laughs> proud. <laughs> uh, 
Mr. Robbie folks, I thank you for your time. Is there, uh, where can you, uh, your social media or website, things that uh, people may track you down if, and find more of you? Uh, just my website, which is my name.com, RobbieFalks.com. And, and then, uh, for my dates, uh, I guess my touring dates, which are zero during the pandemic here, but, uh, hopefully I'll be back, <laughs> back at work again, uh, pretty soon. Uh, you know, they're there on the website and Facebook and so on. favor subscribe to the podcast remember to rate and review it and if you like become a patreon supporter at patreon.com slash matt or conversations with dwyer also listen to my friend's podcast hunk by mike bridenstine and kill gallon's pub with joe kill thank you so much for listening i look forward to seeing you again